Stories Behind the White Coat. I'm Ben Davis, and this is Grayscale. Hey everyone, welcome back. Today we welcome Dr. Acton Pfeiffer. Acton is one of the lead residents here at our program who works out of the Downtown Family Medicine Clinic. DFM is a public health partnership and FQHC site. After graduation, Acton will be attending an addiction medicine fellowship here at Swedish. And as always, certain names and details are changed to protect the identities of our patients. For me, even before starting to talk about my patient, it was it was, it was, it was a little full circle thinking about doing this today when you sent out the email for folks interested. Because I remember listening to this podcast, driving here from Florida and hearing the names of everyone and being, I don't know who any of these folks are. They seem pretty cool. And <laughs> I, so I, cool. For, whatever, for whatever reason, this one line from Joe is seared into my head where he was talking about a patient with misdiagnosis. And I can't remember the exact plot of the story, but there's a line in there where he said, I went to my colleague, Maureen, <laughs> and she told me something different than what I was thinking. And it triggered that, oh, I should probably be thinking something else. And just how often that has played out since then, and then hearing Laura, and then Kim, and then now being an episode after Kim, and that like invoking a lot of the anxiety I had taking over the lead role after Kim of where I was like, man, Kim's so... Big shoes. Awesome, and you can't can't fill those shoes. You can't fill those shoes. Size 16. I don't know if you'll be able to use that, but wanted to bring it up because it was a cool moment personally um, to be like, oh, I'll be on that podcast now. Funny, little known fact, I don't know if I ever told you that there's only one episode of this podcast that I pretty much never had to edit. Mm -hmm. That was Joe's episode because Joe speaks with such intention. does. And... He has a slower cadence because he doesn't use fillers, which everyone else does. You know, the ums, the likes, the the breaths. And uh, yeah, Joe's, Joe's, I almost I didn't have to edit anything. It was a pretty, pretty easy episode for me. So shout out to Joe. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to include that, but uh, good job, Joe. That's right. So <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll lean, lean right into it. So the, the background of where this story starts for my patient, um, Ryan, is during when you're transitioning from your second year of residency to your third year, you get patient sign out from one of the graduating residents. Uh, this particular patient was seen by Katie Wan, who um, I could say many great things about her, but for brevity's sake, I will just say was getting this patient from from Katie, and we had we had gone through all of her patients that she felt like needed to be signed out to me, and Ryan was the last patient. She she led with this is the person I am most worried is going to die under your care. So that was that was the context in which. I first got to know Ryan. We then had, I don't know, maybe a 10, 15 minute conversation 
that in retrospect was a very medicalized conversation where it was talking about diagnoses and and past hospital workups and what's going on in the clinic workup and frequency of follow-up and things to follow up on and and you know it was it was useful and that and that is appropriate for the sign out but there there really wasn't and this may be just my memory forgetting it there really wasn't a ton on a ton else on on Ryan and he is a guy who really struggled with with alcohol use and and you know if you're going to have a problem list for him that would essentially be problems 1 2 and 3 and all of the sequelae that that came from that initially when i heard that and when i meet any patient that has alcohol use disorder or problems it's a triggering moment for me because i come from a family where several folks really struggle with alcohol use and um uh, for their privacy sake a few who are really close and were really integral and in raising me struggled with alcohol use a lot when i was growing up and it was a huge driver of why i entered medicine and shaped a lot of the initial views of why i entered medicine was addiction and the mental physical and and you know psychosocial effects that that plays in in their lives and not only their lives but their their family's life their loved ones lives all around it and those those intersections that i think the more you look in medicine the more obvious they come so before i even met ryan i i kind of had some guards up just to be wary for myself of this could be a potentially triggering patient situation and just be mindful of that when entering the room and the first time i met him the sweetest guy you could imagine um welcoming very verbose was just a master at deflection and <laughs> and and just you could you could ask him something pinpoint and he would find a way not to answer it it was just it was it was remarkable and when you know a lot of those initial visits were we we really didn't you know accomplish and you can't see my hands but i'm throwing up air quotes much in the visit so to speak they were he was one of those you know patients where you see every every couple of weeks really frequently and and really didn't move or i felt like we weren't moving that much in terms of medical medical progress and he he continued to drink and you know it future and future visits his caretaker uh would come in what was the name we used for the caretaker (laughs) (laughs) i believe the caretaker's name was sean sean (laughs) so his his, at future visits you know his caretaker sean started to come in as as he got sicker and and he continued to drink continued to get more sick and got to a point where he was needing to get paracentesis on a fairly regular basis. And I love our clinic at Downtown Family Medicine, called DFM for short. Unfortunately, 
one of the things that we can't do there are paracentesis for our patients. I still don't quite understand it, but we don't have the equipment there to do that. Or we have the equipment, but we can't get rid of the fluid for whatever reason. We can do a whole lot of other great stuff there. Um, if any applicants are listening, <laughs> <laughs> but, but paracentesis are not one of them. And so started to coordinate between our clinic at DFM and the first hill clinic here. And Ryan started to come here probably on a weekly basis to get paracentesis. And so got to know several of the residents here as well the the ones that come to mind off the top of my head are are on and and mallory in this clinic who met him fairly frequently and this was kind of the path we were in for i'd say the first half of second year of residency and towards the middle you know i i I don't remember the exact time or anything, but his health kind of really started to decline all while continuing to drink despite, you know, many conversations and recognition on his end of what the drinking was doing to his health, which were really challenging conversations to have. You know, I remember hearing it on here and also having a lot of conversations with with Kim about this of the guilt of not doing everything you can and this feeling of of failure that stems from guilt that stems from caring about this person and that you're not doing enough for them and I felt a lot of second year you know, I'm so close to getting him to recognize his drinking and that he does, he could have a little bit more control over it, not to say necessarily stop, but to get it to a point where this could slow his progression because you know, he was in a, a, a ton of pain when his abdomen would swell up and he was having more and more ED visits and just was sick and in pain all the time. And you could see it in his demeanor. He went from being really verbose and just exuding a positive energy that in retrospect was likely a again one skill for deflection and covering a lot of pain that was underneath when you'd walk into the room to where as his illness progressed and he was in more and more pain that ability to wear that mask when you walked into the room went away and you could you could see you could see it in his face you could see it in his body language you could hear it in his voice and and that's you know where I think our relationship really started to change and become even you know deeper than I'd say it was where we were still meeting on the same basis but finally once he kind of hit this point when I would bring up end-of-life care and goals of care, we started to have some real conversations around that of what really mattered to him. And I got to know a lot more about Ryan than 
I think I've, I know of any other patient that I've ever taken care of. And so he was a gentleman who had been um, married several times. His first husband, who he had told me was who he felt closest to, passed from a really traumatic death a few few years into their marriage. Um, it was a prolonged death where he was in the hospital for a long period of time and sounds to have been in a lot of pain. And Ryan was his caretaker during that moment and had to be there for him and watch that and I've had loved ones die I have loved ones who are sick and in and out of the hospital now and I can't imagine you know the love of your life essentially just watching them fade away in front of you and the pain and trauma that that could invoke and after his first husband passes when his drinking really started and got to where it was when I was seeing him at that moment in time we started to talk more about just his life and where he came from and I came to learn that he was from this very small town in Oklahoma the exact same small town in Oklahoma that a family member in my life who really struggles with alcohol use is also from. He identifies as a gay man, and um, again, this is to to protect some of their um, their story and their truth. I'll just say I've again some folks really close in my life who were who were queer and coming out to me at the time and were having a lot of conversations and it was it was kind of through these conversations with Ryan almost uh, a a reckoning in myself of maybe some things in my personal life that I was suppressing or running from at times in in medical school and residency of where I knew these were driving factors but they were also really painful memories right we talk a lot about in medicine and it's true the importance of the identity and the lived experiences you bring into a room whether that's through your own self or by proxy and there are certain identities that I bring into a room and other providers bring into a room. And then there are those which, unless you earn that trust and build that relationship, maybe aren't as apparent on face value. And Ryan was someone who our relationship came even closer when he shared these things and I reciprocated and 
again, like if you walk into a room and see a provider who who looks like you or comes from the same place as you and there's that instant therapeutic bond at times or trust or recognition, that that's the best way I can describe it. It was almost a, a verbal a verbal bridge that just kind of happened in those moments. And there are more humorous things and I think the fun little details that you learn about your patients came to surface too. He had dog that was the new love of his life, so to speak, that he talked about endlessly and I got to meet. Um we uh I, I don't think pets are technically allowed at our clinic, but we have a remarkable number of patients that are able to sneak them through security downstairs and Ryan's dog was one of one of those uh animals that got through. What kind of dog? Uh Dachshund. Little 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 wiener dog. Uh learned a ton more about his caretaker Sean. Yep, Sean. Sean. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that name's not sticking. <laughs> Sean and the their relationship that Sean and and his partner would come over once a week outside of his caretaker hours and make Ryan one of his favorite dinners which probably drove the hepatologist crazy because they never sounded that low in sodium Uh, (laughs) (laughs) and and eventually we started you know once we learned I think these these details and built trust over months started to have these really hard conversations of what what scared Ryan and what he wanted in his end of life. And those were things that when I'd bring them up earlier at the year, so beginning of second year, would not talk about he would he would talk about anything and everything, would ask all the questions about you. But if you tried to slip in something of how do you, you know, if you keep drinking, how do you how do you want the end of your life? What do you want it to look like? What matters to you at the end of life? Would pivot off of it and finally it stuck and he opened up about it and his biggest fear was to die in pain like he saw his husband do and to die alone. And we were able to transition to hospice care. The last month or so of his life, I never saw him in person. They were all phone visits because he had a wonderful hospice team that was going out to see him in his home several days a week. And Sean was still going to see him on a regular basis. And so we would just have weekly phone visits just to check in, see how he's doing. And there were some days where those visits would be less than five minutes because he was in so much pain. When it kind of got to get towards the end, he'd be confused and not really able to talk that much. And I'd spend most of the visit talking with 
with Sean. And, you know, I, I kind of in my mind just was waiting for him to die. And, and in the background, this was all during peak COVID where I couldn't do a home visit or go see him, which just sucked on so many levels. And so this was going on and like, like we do in residency, I went back to work in the hospital for a few weeks and was doing, I, yeah, it was a, it was, it was a 24 hour shift. Um, so had finished all the stuff during the day and, you know, was with another senior resident for the night and it got to be around 11 or midnight and I decided to go to bed because I'd been working since you know 6 a.m and things weren't too active so went to bed and woke up in the morning and saw that Ryan had been admitted overnight and the first visceral reaction I had was oh my god what happened why is he here he we had had so many conversations he did not want to be in the hospital then it pivoted to anger where I was like why didn't I get woken up if you you know and 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 that's not on the resident I was with at all because you know we, that happens all the time if we're a resident listed as a PCP you have a busy night shift there's a couple hours left it's like I'll let them know in the morning when they wake up it was coming from a place of care for me and he was completely encephalopathic at this point you know coming in and out of almost a comatose state and this was from his his alcohol use and and in-stage liver disease and what sounded like happened was he was at home and just woke up in an intense amount of pain and didn't see anyone around him and in a panic called 911 who then sent an an EMS and and found him and brought him in and I stayed after that shift and just to wait for Sean to get there and I am not a religious person but if there was a miracle, this would be one where he came to for long enough to have a conversation with the three of us in the room. And it's centered back to what were his two goals, which were to not die alone and to not die in pain. And that location we had envisioned being outside of the hospital but when we came back to what mattered most to Ryan, we had those two things and probably better control over one of them, which was to not die in pain, if we're being honest. And to, and the second one of not dying alone as well, because Ryan was such a, he, he, he craved human interaction more than I think I have met in any 
patient or person to where he just wanted to know about you more than anyone and and build some type of relationship with anyone and everyone he came into contact to and so being in a hospital with new nurses every night was you know if he was in his old self probably would have been comforting because it just would mean a new person to get to know every night and he eventually over it wasn't long it was maybe 48 to 72 hours died comfortably and Sean was there and in retrospect there's things that I like with any patient whether it's something as gravitas as life or death or just a routine follow-up visit I think when you get enough time to sit back and reflect on it, there's always room to improve, whether that's with your medical decision-making, how you held yourself in the room, how you conversed with the patient. And there are a lot of things with Ryan that I'm really proud of and and grateful for. And then there, there are things that I regret or wish we could have done sooner and ask myself what if or could could this course have changed if you know maybe I would have been more open about some of my experiences or traumas with him earlier on and didn't just wait for him to share that before sharing those stories about myself and then I think one of the more rewarding or eye-opening things and reaffirming experiences of how I felt about Ryan was after his death too where I stayed in contact with Sean um, to check in with him and make sure that he was okay and also just make sure there wasn't anything I could help with and Sean told me we talked on the phone probably a week or two after Ryan had died just where he was blown away at the number of people that were messaging him on social media and posting these really moving stories people from this small little town in Oklahoma where he grew up to where he and his first husband lived in Oregon to now folks he knew here in Seattle and then you know Ryan was also what we joyfully call a legacy patient in the residency where he had been uh, a patient at DFM since its since its founding with the partnership with the residency and so we do a memorial for patients every year and I knew instantly that he was someone I wanted to say a few words about and as part of it I I started looking through his chart a little more in detail just to kind of like what was he like when he first came here and saw notes from every everyone I saw a note from you I saw a note from (laughs) from John Stevens I saw a note from Katie from 
Colin from just name any DFM resident from the past 10 years and they at some point interacted with them whether or not they remember it or not I don't know but he touched everyone and then the really cool thing about Ryan was he in the last year of his life interacted with residents from across the program which is pretty rare there's only a handful of patients that really touch and play a role in the learning and growth of residents from multiple clinic sites and he did that through you know people saw him admitted him from the emergency department people saw him here at first hill for outpatient stuff ton of residents saw him at dfm and then our inpatient teams took care of him as well and so it was comforting in a way to have so many other individuals share that load of him passing and and obviously i'm biased in that i think i was closer than to him than a lot of other folks but even just that that fraction of of shared understanding of what made him special and being able to share that with other folks was a really meaningful and comforting experience for me because this is something I struggle with and I think a lot of providers struggle with is not neglecting to care for yourself and remembering to you have to take care of the people who take care of other people and residency as a whole is challenging and then there are certain moments that can make or break residents and this was certainly one that I think could have broken me down a little bit and, you know, I don't know if it would have changed my baseline, so to speak, but it, it ended up building me up because it was a really beautiful experience to talk about Ryan and then hear other people's experiences with him, talk with Sean more after his passing and hear stories that they had, read stories in the notes even if some folks maybe <laughs> their notes maybe aren't as verbose as others, you could still <laughs> still pick out some of what happened. And I think the the last thing that comes to mind right now of his story too was just how simplified our our sign outs or initial impression of someone can be whether that's in medicine or life he got me to think a lot about how our interactions amongst each other as a society and then even in a microcosm a residency have changed because of covid of where if all i would have had known about ryan was that initial sign out and had had more of a traditional patient provider 
relationship where it's seeing them once every few months, I know 100% wouldn't have gotten to the same level of intimacy or details or understanding of Ryan as a person as I did because of the severity of his illness and the frequency at which we interacted. And it makes me wonder just how much I'm missing with my peers and how much of that was taken because of COVID, which is really sad and and hard and and how much how much shared understanding and and nuance is is lost amongst us as providers right now because we're in a lot of ways siloed in ways we weren't before and makes me really grateful for those the small group that I have been able to share more experiences with outside of residency and gotten to know on a deeper level and it it just it he continually reminds me of the importance of consistency and the nuances that come with interacting with someone face to face that you just you just lose otherwise and that you can never assume or 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 judge about anyone you have to you have to have those hard conversations and you you can't be afraid to be vulnerable yourself and obviously there's there's a line right the patients aren't supposed to be therapeutic to you right like you're you're supposed to be there caring caring for them but i think anyone in in our field especially family medicine and primary care would be losing something if they didn't get therapy themselves and growth themselves from the interactions that they have with their patients and he's he's someone i think when i think on residency less from a medical decision making standpoint and more so of a reflecting on what traumas and triggers do i bring into a workplace that i need to be conscious of in patients how those can be turned into strengths for both understanding and building a therapeutic bond with people that I meet just I wish I could I wish I could sum it up more succinctly but just really loving a patient too um and 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 caring I think we say a lot this is what I would do if it was my family member but how many times do we really mean that and mean it on a like where it where it hurts uh where you feel it i i don't know if speaking for myself i don't know how many times i i can maybe count on a handful of where i've said that to a patient and really viscerally felt it and he's one of them and i know that comes from a lot of the commonalities that he shares with people who i love who um have identities that are marginalized or illnesses that are also marginalized but cause intense pain and suffering and he he made me wonder how much am i missing 
with those loved ones in my life that struggle with addiction that I maybe need to have some harder conversations and am I ready to do that and made me question a lot of you know this is why I went into medicine but if I'm being honest with myself there's a component of me that one came here for the wonderful training and the people and I do want to stay here and there was a part of me that was running from a lot of my past and wanting to get some distance between me and those things that drove me into medicine because I don't know how sustainable they would be if I was around them all the time or constantly reminded about them all the time. I can be I can be constantly reminded of them through my patients and there's a a a self-soothing component to it almost of where I couldn't change it or Again, this is the air quotes, fix it with my loved ones or family, but maybe I can make it a little bit better for them. And if not, I can empathize with a little bit quicker someone struggling with addiction because of growing up with it by by proxy. But just kind of what some of what comes to mind when I think of Ryan. Was this a happy ending? I think if you're going to put it in buckets of folks who see the glass half full versus half empty, I think I have to actively work to see it half full. And my initial reaction wants to say it wasn't a happy ending. But again... I have to remind myself maybe it wasn't a happy ending for me but it was a happy ending for Ryan in terms of what he told me and you have to what what he told me he wanted in the end of his life and you have to I have to take him at his word and I have a lot of confidence in those conversations that we had them when we had them that that really is what he wanted because we had them multiple times and he expressed the same thing multiple times and I think I takes pride in that it was a happy ending as well because Sean also told me it was a happy ending and reached out to me a few times afterwards as well and I don't think that would have happened if it weren't a happy ending and there's a lot of there's a lot of unhappy endings in medicine more so than happy endings I think and so I'm very young and or very early into my medical journey so to speak but even just with the the spectrum of endings I've been exposed to, I, th- I think his did fall more on, on the happier side. And a lot of the unhappiness I feel is more just, I think, rooted in mourning the loss of someone I really cared about. 
and trying to dissociate the two is hard. Yeah, you you, you mentioned dissociating the two. How, and you mentioned a lot of things that you learned as acting the physician. Is there some degree of dissociation or do you, does the act in the physician take away the same experience, the same growth as acting the human being or does acting the human being take away something different or anything at all? I think, I don't know if I'd be able to separate the two if I'm being honest because being a physician is really integral to how I view myself as a human being. I think it's protective in a lot of ways because frankly what we do is really hard. I think when when you when you zoom out in the grand context of things, I have a really wonderful life and I I think a lot of us here do, right? Like we have families and support and we're going to make a really comfortable living. We live in a beautiful part of like there's there's a ton to be grateful for. And that's still not to say that a lot of what we do is really hard because we absorb a lot of secondary trauma, I think, from our patients and their experiences. And personally, I bring that home with me a lot and Initially, it bothered me some, but then it's just you you learn, or at least I have learned to kind of sit in that and not not try to actively force it out. Like if it's there, let it be there and try and process it. And that personally works better for me than just trying to leave it, leave it, leave it at work. And so, to circle back to your question. I don't know. I don't know if there's there's a difference in the two. Like I think when I grow as a physician, I grow as a person, and and vice versa. You mentioned guilt a few times. Guilt, I have found, is a common thread amongst some of the best doctors that I know. How do you balance using guilt as an asset and not letting it spill over to where it becomes a detriment to how you interact with your patients? So for me personally, it's accepting that there's guilt and reframing guilt in my mind is not a negative emotion, but an emotion that connotates caring because I agree with what you're saying and think of some of the most compassionate doctors I've come across are also some of just laden with guilt all the time. I'll talk about Kim here because she was on my podcast and talked about her guilt. <laughs> but Kim, I, I, Kim, if you're listening to this, I love you and I miss <laughs> you, but she, she is constantly laden with guilt and sometimes I don't understand it because I'm like she's the most giving person I have ever met and I I can say that pretty confidently so to go back to your 
to your question, guilt, I, 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 I think it's a good thing. And I try to remind myself of that. And I try not to let it distress me because when I'm feeling guilt about something, usually it, it's a trigger of, oh, I need to reflect on this moment more or think about it more. Um, I, I wrestled in college and struggled a lot with anxiety before matches. And this is a very bro-y athlete thing to talk about, but just thinking about patient interactions as, as, as matches, like I remember someone, you know, a, a, a quote that was thrown to me was that, that pressure that you feel before a match is, is a privilege because it, it means that the endeavor you're about to take on means something to you. And so every time I feel guilt about an interaction or about a patient or about a decision I made or about a conversation I had with a friend or loved one, I don't look at that guilt as a bad thing. It's a, oh, I, I can learn from this. And so use it as a, use it as a motivator and not, not a detriment. And obviously I'm not perfect with that. And I don't think anyone is, but let that guilt be a a fuel for change and not a, not a fuel for, for burning the house down, so to speak. So there's this notion, a quote where you died twice. So the, the time where you take your last breath and then the time someone last utters your name. And in that way, Ryan continues to live on even right now. You mentioned sign out for Ryan in that, um, you know, we have to be brief, we have to be efficient and concise, but if you were to give your version of a sign out for Ryan, what would it be? Ryan is a patient who struggles with his alcohol use He is not someone with just an addiction. He is someone who has survived an enormous amount of trauma and stigma and pain. And he uses that alcohol to mask a lot of that pain. To really get to know him, It's going to take time and a lot of patience and a lot of persistence. And you're maybe going to have to ask the same question 10 different times in 10 different ways to maybe start to get an iota of the truth. He wants to know about you and he can... He can read through masking and superficial answers because he does that himself. And so if if you really want to get to maybe a point of being able to care for him from a medical standpoint, you need to not be afraid to tear down some of your own mask or guard that you might bring into a room. 
And if all that fails, talk about his dog. Grayscale is produced by Ben Davis. I want to thank Dr. Pfeiffer for joining us today and sharing his story. And as always, a special thank you to our patients who continue to enrich our lives through shared experiences. 